0: This morning, I want to continue some of the themes that uh, Anna Douglas brought up uh, last week. Uh, Anna spoke last week uh, particularly about uh, impermanence, dukkha, her suffering, and anatta, the lack of a permanent, lasting identity or self. And those three areas are the areas of traditional uh, pointing towards liberating insight. And she explored that. And she also explored some connection with those themes in relationship to um, aging uh, and also um, death. And I wanted to explore the themes of aging, but in a larger context of the stages of life, and also bring an em- emphasis on, uh, on death as well. And I want to offer seven perspectives on these themes. <laughs> okay? And this is actually my first talk ever that goes into the themes of aging in a significant way. So I've never done it before. We'll see what happens. <laughs> and I've given, like, I think, uh, two talks related to to death, both, maybe, maybe two or three, both on occasions when my parents died. And I've given them uh, all here, I believe. Some of you have heard them. And it's interesting for me to reflect because... I had some of my very uh, important uh, teaching that I did when I was in my 20s, which actually had a major impact on my whole trajectory of teaching, was working with an experimental program with people 65 to 90. It was called Evergreen College. (laughs) It was an experimental project, and I worked, and it was, for me, it was exhilarating. And I first became more aware of some of the... um, but the tendencies towards generations not to be connected. I could really uh, feel that, the longing of the people in that group uh, to connect with people of different ages. And I had a lot of joy being in my 20s then and working with them. And it was very, very powerful. And interestingly also, my first full-time teaching position that I was invited to take when I was 30 years old. When I was 30, I was invited to teach at a university in Ohio. (laughs) Where's the R, Ohio friend? (laughs) And uh, they had a need for someone to teach a course on death and dying, or actually teach uh, sections of it. It was the second most popular course. This was Bowling Green State University. It was the second most popular course in the whole university. They had like hundreds of people wanted to take this course on death and dying. And I think the, partly because the emphasis was experiential. <laughs> I have to clarify what that means. <laughs> but it meant that we didn't primarily read books. We did inquiry into our own attitudes, and we did guided practices, very much meditative. This was developed by a, another teacher, but there were so many sections that they uh, took, They wanted me. At age 30, they said, you should be very good to teach on death and dying. It was a little strange. Um, it was a powerful course. The, the most popular course at the university was on sex. Second most popular on death and dying, (laughs) sort of the uh, bookends of life, so to speak. (laughs) So, uh, but it was very powerful to teach, and I I learned so much. And you know, we again, we mostly did uh, had people do inquiries and journals. We used film a lot, and we looked at the parallels really between. Uh, some of the issues of death and dying and what would come up for people at any age, particularly loss, you know, which was certainly there for people who were in college, you know, that we found that the dynamics of loss and facing something difficult were not so much different whether there was the loss of a pet or the loss of a close relationship, or death. The dynamics were quite similar. That was interesting. I didn't really know that before. And that made it something that we could look at and find be uh, really appropriate uh, at that age. And that's why I guess it it stayed as this very, very popular uh, course. And so, similarly, in this uh, presentation today, I'm going to try to have our exploration really be something which can be connected with uh, really anyone at any age. I think of this area, you know, looking at loss or the stages of life or death and dying as one of the areas which can take us deeply. We call these uh, areas sometimes dharma gates. That these are gateways which can take people into the depths. And there are many such gateways. And I think it's very wonderful to reflect that there are many uh, areas which can take ones to the depths of spiritual practice, insight, Development of wisdom, compassion, love, and so forth. And I was thinking about that that, you know, for some of us, one's uh, personal suffering is the doorway. A lot of people enter into meditation, in particular, because there's some significant degree of personal suffering, some lack of uh, resources to work with it, and then one finds the tool of meditation and the perspectives connected with it. For how many of you has that been the case? Personal suffering as a significant doorway, right? Yeah. Another doorway might be looking at uh, social suffering. You know, that, that probably was my first doorway as a teenager being aware of injustice and my parents being very, very active in that way, you know. I think I've mentioned sometimes my parents were, you know, with Dr. King in the 60s and were, you know, near the front of the march on Washington in 1963. And so that was from a very young age. There was sensitivity to that kind of opened things up in various ways. Uh, How many of you had, we can have multiple doorways, how many of you had awareness of injustice and social suffering be a doorway? Yeah, very much. Another doorway might be beauty. It could be the power of the mountains or the ocean or the beauty of art and music. In, um, in the ancient Western cultures, beauty was one of the three main doorways. There was... The three main doorways traditionally were through wisdom, love of wisdom, through... Uh, living ethically and seeking justice, and then beauty. So interesting, that can be a doorway. How many of you, again, have found beauty in its different ways as a doorway to take you deeper, right? It's quite something. And as you hear these, you can say, oh, I haven't gone in that doorway recently. (laughs) Time to come back, right? Yeah. What are some other doorways that you've experienced? If you can just name it in a word or two. Anyone want to name one? Here. What? Here. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, being, maybe being in a place, in a community, in a spiritual center, that can be a doorway. You come, you maybe you have some, something opens you up maybe to even come, but it takes you further, right? It takes you further. Other other doorways, Yeah. Trauma and illness, right? Trauma and illness, approached in certain ways, can open one up to deep knowledge of mind and body, um, compassion, seeing a lot into one's uh, views, right? How many of us have, have, again, had a doorway be trauma, illness? Yeah, wow, look at that. And how many could relate to that theme of like being part of a community as a kind of a doorway. Yeah, wow. So these are these are strong others that peop that occur to you as a doorway. Yeah. Parenting. Parenting, right? <laughs> Parenting as a doorway. How many of you can relate to that? Yeah. It's the only one we've had chuckling about <laughs> so far. But uh can maybe look into that later. But you know, we could also say um, intimate relationships and love right, can be a doorway for people. How many can relate to that? Yeah. Um, others? Any ones I didn't mention? Just a need to find the source. Yeah, a need to find a source. Some kind of deep uh, longing for whatever we call it, truth, knowledge, wisdom, going deeper. This might be connected with seeking wisdom, inquiry, sometimes study, a lot of different ways. You know, how many can relate to that as a doorway to want to know what's true, right? And sometimes that can take the form more of inquiry, questioning, study. Sometimes it could take the form of the experiential inquiry of meditation, Right? So, any ones I didn't mention that occur to you? Yeah, curiosity could be very much connected with that. Like a deep, I mean, a deep and persistent curiosity, you know. Um, Reminds me in in Korean Zen, one of the main techniques was to sit there, hopefully with a still mind, and just say, what is this? (laughs) What is this? And periodically say that. Right? What is this? And again, it sounds a little humorous the way it comes out, but it's actually not. Right? It would actually be very deep uh, curiosity and, and inquiry. And so, what? Loneliness. Loneliness. So different forms of suffering. Again, all of these, a lot of these, can be either a doorway into something deeper or a way that we get further stuck, right? A lot of these. And that don't actually use it as a doorway. So that would be true of aging, the stages of life, death and dying. For some, it can be a doorway into something deeper. And for others, it's just bad. Or it's just something negative, right? And so, again, the way of framing it here is to take it as... Um, what, opportunity, not curse. And I think we, and the general way of framing this, uh, our practice, is to take every challenge, partly through community, partly through the understanding, can we take every challenge as opportunity, not curse. In the Tibetan Lojong teachings it said, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Another way of saying it. And the message, again, as we go in the doorway, the message seems to be very similar with all of these, is that can you take even this challenge or or even this amazing moment, this beauty, and can you, can we be in the present moment, be fully open, see what's there, Be present with what's happening, pleasant or unpleasant. See what gets in the way of doing that. And use that moment to open to what's most deep. Open to the deeper, whatever we call it, core of our being that we could say is a profound and timeless wisdom and love. It's really, can we use any of these doorways to get there and then to, having touched that depth, help others? That's always the message. And so that's going to be the message today. (laughs) So we'll, we'll come back to that. So, seven perspectives. The first is that traditionally the focus... On, and this is true of multiple traditions, the focus on aging and death and change and impermanence has always been to give us a sense of urgency so that we focus on what's most important. That's always the reason that there's a focus and we focus on these areas to give us some sense of urgency to look to what's most important rather than to live our lives through our habits and our conditioning. In the Jewish uh, Bible, it said in, in the Psalms, teach us to number our days to be aware of death that we may gain a heart of wisdom So the numbering of the days is taken to be something that can open us us up more to wisdom. In the Tibetan tradition, as as probably as many of you know, there's a, a preliminary teaching about what are called the four ways to turn your mind and your being towards practice. One of them is to remember the preciousness of life. And the preciousness of being in a situation where we can do spiritual practice, not to take it for granted. And so it's said that actually to have the conditions where we live in a place where we can hear teachings, where we can practice freely, is very rare, not to take it for granted to reflect on the preciousness. So we have some degree of time and the possibility of following those doorways, we mentioned, or going in those doorways. And not all societies have freedom. I remember traveling, I traveled twice to what's now Russia, once when it was the Soviet Union. I met people who had been in jail for practicing yoga. In the 1970s, and 1980s, I met people who had been in mental institutions. You know, not all societies can we practice freely. We don't always have the right conditions where we have teachers. I met people when I was first practicing. I started when, when I was in my 20s. And I met people who had been practicing meditation and maybe started in the 40s or 50s. They did not have adequate uh, teaching. They did not have teachers always available. I met people who said I was stuck and lost for ten years because I didn't know what to do and I didn't have people I could turn to. You know, this is all, these reflections are more to bring about a sense of the conditions in many ways are right. How do I want to use my time? One Tibetan teacher said, life is fluttering by like the banners in the wind. What is worthwhile? And so the reflections on this are always to ask us to see whether we're living according to our deeper values and priorities. How am am I living? In the... uh, Theravada tradition, there are lines which go, which are subjects of daily reflection. The days are relentlessly passing. How am I living? So it can be a little bit, it can be a little bit like that, but ultimately the purpose is to um, have us ask that question honestly. And maybe something, we want to let go of something. Uh, The Buddha once said, mindfulness of death, when developed and pursued, is of great fruit and great benefit. It gains a footing in the deathless, has the deathless as its final end. Therefore, you should develop mindfulness of death. So he's saying that focusing on death ultimately helps one to point beyond death. And I'll come back to that. So it's really to ask what's important. That's my first perspective that reflecting on this and one can uh, take as a daily practice to reflect on change, impermanence, and the fact of death. I did this once for two years, just for five minutes a day. And it had an effect. You can do this. It can Again, the purpose is always to, to lead one to make some adjustments. Okay. Do I really want to do that as much of my life as I do? You know how how do i want to how do i want to live second perspective in most cultures there is a sense of stages of life with particular tasks appropriate for particular ages and in most cultures probably other than our own there's a very strong valuing of elders we i think have probably not ambivalence, we tend to be negative towards people who are older, I think. But in most cultures, that's not the case. You know, there's that sense of the elder as the source of wisdom and guidance for the community. And so, some of you know the model in uh, ancient India called the four stages of life. Very beautiful model. And You know, not everyone follows this, but this was generally taken as a model of the stages of life held by the deep value of spiritual practice. The first stage was being a student. And this generally started around age eight or nine. There was a kind of initiation. And then one typically spent time with a teacher, sometimes even living in the teacher's house, until about the age of 20. So you had about 12 years of being a student. Not as many as many of us have had, right? Where being a student can... <clears throat> I mean, it's a good, good thing to being a student in, you know, in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, but um, the early years it was said, okay, around age 20, then you become a householder. And there were three main tasks at that age. One of them was uh, seen as marriage. A second was seen as following a particular vocation. And a third was contributing to the community. Pretty obvious dimensions of life. And that was a second stage. And then at a later point, it could be in those cultures, it could be even in one's 40s or 50s, there was retirement. You moved away from your usual work And you maybe spent some time in the community not working so much. And then the fourth stage for those drawn to it was that of being a renunciate. It could be being a monk or nun or yogi. And this was where one, at a certain age beyond being a householder, devoted all of one's energy to going in that doorway and finding out, following that curiosity following the quest to know the deeper meaning of life. And so, even now, every 12 years, there's a gathering of the renunciates in India. Has anyone been to that? Maybe someone has. It's called the Kumbh Mela in India. And it's this gathering of millions of renunciates all in one place every 12 years. You know, it's quite. I've had friends... I haven't gone, but I've had friends who've gone. It's quite remarkable, right? Can you imagine? And um, traditionally, a lot of those renunciates, uh, I think both male and female, uh, in, the, in some traditions, including Jain, they uh, even at you know in their forties, fifties, they would walk around their entire lives naked, being a renunciate. They would renounce everything. <laughs> <laughs> right, and um, the, the phrase was clothed in the sky <laughs> right. and in fact uh, later Buddhist monks in, in their form of renunciations I, I didn't really know this so well but I, I did a little bit of research for the talk and the, the uh, kind of orange robes that Buddhist monks wear was actually taken because that was the color given to criminals about to be executed in the society. It was the color uh, that was the color for criminals. And they took that as almost a sign of their leaving behind the society. It's interesting, isn't it? So you have those four stages, and there's this very... Powerful place, we could say, for the elders to engage fully in the spiritual quest. Interesting, isn't it? Of course, some people would be drawn in their 20s, right? In their young age. And for later Buddhist monks and nuns, that would often be the case. People would be called at an early age to follow that quest and have it be lifelong, you know, and then, you know, they would get to be the Uh, in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, they would become the teachers. And in fact, the lineage that's represented in Spirit Rock is called the Way of the Elders. That's what the word Theravada means. That's the lineage that Spirit Rock is connected with. It's the Way of the Elders. Interesting. We can also think of how, in indigenous culture, the elders are the sources of wisdom and guidance for the community. I was thinking of, some of you know, Standing Rock, the um, demonstrations there last year. They were all guided by the tribal elders. So in so many cultures, that is where the, the role of one as one has lived life is to give guidance to the community and to give wisdom. So that's my, th- that's my second perspective, is that in a lot of other cultures, there's this model of the stages and there's a very special role for people as they become older. Now we turn, the third perspective is, what is the social conditioning and cultural conditioning of our society in relationship to these different issues, particularly uh, the stages of life, aging, and death? in my view, it has a lot, um, a lot of improvement could be called for. <laughs> <laughs> One way to say it. And that, that actually um, is, I think it's very important to look at the conditioning no matter what age one's in because the conditioning is there for everyone. you know. And I remember being in my 20s and even though I, th- I think I had very close relationships with my grandparents who were alive, two of my grandparents died young, but two of them lived uh, through to when I was in my teens and 20s. And I thought they were really cool, <laughs> you know, and I loved being with them. Uh, but I also noticed that I, st- I started to develop some negative views towards older people. I, for me personally, I remembered that. I really didn't like pot bellies. You may have your own thing, you know. As a twenty-year-old you know, or twenty-five-year-old said, I do not want to have a pot belly when I grow older. Right? And it was just eh. <laughs> and sort of negative views, right? What did I think about people? You know, was there compassion there? Was there understanding of different, you know, physiological types? No. It was just a kind of negativity. It was in my conditioning. And of course, then what happens as I get older? You can't see it so well, but I have a little bit of a pot belly. (laughs) Right? It's like the views which one has at 20 or 25 about people who are older, are they going to change when you get to be 50 or 60? You're going to still have the same views. And they're going to translate into negativity towards yourself. That's why, it's, that's why it's important to look at the views at any age, right? They're going to turn into, and, and of course we see that a lot, right? It's going to be self-judgment about oneself or lack of uh, meaning or you know, placing all of one's value on when one was physically most active or whatever. You know, it's often what we do. It's, society does that a lot. And people, if they're not in a certain mode, and they get to that later age, they will devalue themselves. And that can lead to self-judgment, that can lead to depression, and worse, right? You know, the, uh, you probably have seen the statistics that the highest increase in suicide in the last period of time has been white men in their 50s and 60s. A very, very rapid increase in uh, suicides in that demographic. What's it connected to? A lot of it's connected to the changes in the economy. And, you know, the general economic managers saying, uh, you know, I think we don't have to pay so much to people if they're in their 20s. And you have a lot of experience. You're 45 or 50, but I think um, bye-bye or we'll take the jobs to the third world, right? And that's serious, right? That's, um, that's, you know, that's what happens when the bottom line predominates, right? And hook that into people's conditioning about age. No coincidence that there's this vast increase in suicides, right? Do you have a question? Or if it's a comment, maybe, can you hold it till later? Yeah, the clarifying question could be okay. Okay, this is a big phenomenon. I, have been reading this book, which is interesting, <clears throat> called "Ending Ageism," or "How Not to Shoot Old People." <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting book by Margaret uh, Morgan wrote uh, Galette. A lot of insights. You know, I've learned I've learned a lot reading it. Um, but we can look. We can look into the various uh, views we have, the judgments. We don't have much sense of older people as potentially elders. You know, I think we yearn for wise elders. You know, maybe particularly in this period of time. Right? <laughs> One of, the th- one of the things that she talks about is age-related trauma. And the fact that there's, you know, think of someone who suddenly gets unemployed, has no prospects, and might live for 20 years, right? Think of that. You know, that's a, and, and it could be a kind of trauma. So that this third perspective is inviting us to look at our own conditioning, our own views, a lot of it related to negativity, Towards aging, and really uh, a lack of a lot of the perspectives I just mentioned in my second perspective. A lot of you know because clearly, the you know I would say it this way. I think uh, I think of um, ageism as the one maybe the last civil rights horizon. Hasn't been done really. Right. Been done some with laws on discrimination, but. It might be, it's something that I think there's not so much consciousness about. It might be something that's done. And the, the positive horizon is to ask uh, what's the possibility in our culture for seeing elders as the source of wisdom and guidance? And what would that mean? Would we ha- what would the counterpart of uh, people at a certain age, 40, 50, 60, seeing the spiritual quest as the center of their lives. And of course, a lot of us drawn, I was drawn into that in my 20s, right? So it's different ages. So that that's really my fourth perspective is that there are actually amazing possibilities to transform the culture and to see uh, what, would it, what, the, what would this culture look like If elders were the source of wisdom and respected. So keep that perspective. Maybe if you, I don't know, if you watch television, one of the sources, one of the places you can really see the conditioning is around ads. I don't watch television much, but sometimes I see ads and they're generally, with older people, they're making fun of them. Look at that, you know. See one's own views. See if you have the counterpart of my pot belly view. (laughs) Right? Uh, All of this is to avoid unnecessary suffering. That's what this is about. Fifth perspective is to come back to something that Anna mentioned last time, which is that we can use the doorway of uh, looking at impermanence as a way to really deepen our practice with these issues. To look at change. To see clearly how change occurs. To see that both at a gross level and to see that in a meditative way. And this was traditionally one of the uh, core instructions to really study the process of change and impermanence. See that as continual. See change as always happening. The Buddha's last words, all conditioned things are impermanent. Keep on practicing. <laughs> yeah. And the notion is that if we really look at impermanence enough, we won't hang on so much. We'll have a better understanding of change as occurring. And we, we've looked in some of the previous weeks and months here. I've often, quite a number of times, I've given Very simple impermanence practice, which one can do. You know, in the meditation where you maybe take for five minutes, you just work with one sense, like sound. You just watch things arising, staying for a while, changing, passing away. Do that with sound. Do that with sensation. I just came from a retreat where we did that for several days in a row. At a retreat. You know, you can one can work with and really deepen impermanence. And this is, again, one way to really give an experiential basis for what we're talking about. Each night we chanted uh, a chant, which some of you know, anicha Vata-Sankara, no Upajitwa, Upajitava, Niruchanti, Desang, Upasamo, Sukho. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings peace. That would be a meditative uh, practice that would help one cultivate uh, this more and more, to have that sense of impermanence more and more. Uh, A lot of our a lot of our lack of seeing of impermanence is because we live so much in a world of concepts. And if we can experientially notice change more fully, it opens us up to where we're holding on or where we're stuck. So I'm going, I notice I'm going a little more quickly through these later perspectives. So uh, the sixth perspective is about the nature of the self. Stephen Levine wrote a book in the 1980s entitled, Who Dies? What is the self? Who ages? Who retires? Who gets a job? These can be very uh, deep questions. And I've looked often, and Anna looked a little bit last week, we've looked often here in the last years at the question of the nature of the self and the the core teaching from the Buddha of anatta, sometimes translated as not-self. And I've tried to, rather than approach this conceptually, try to understand it more practically and in two ways. One of them, can I notice where I seem to have... Uh, what I call a thick sense of self, where a sense of self gets very big, thick, where I'm reactive, maybe around my social conditioning, where I'm judgmental. And we notice that, study it, and try to release that thick sense of self. Sometimes that's where there are wounds. Have, where there are wounds, we have, maybe have a thick sense of self. All of the teachings are pointing to work with where there's a thick sense of self. I think we need to heal where we have wounds, or where there are developmental issues. But we can also notice that fixed self. I can notice my judgmental mind. I can notice my conditioning about my age, about people of a different age, about death and dying. And again, as I mentioned near the beginning, the emphasis is to see where the flow of my experience gets stuck by reactivity and concepts. And see if I can open up to the flow of experience without stopping the flow. That's a very simple way of talking about what this teaching is about. In meditation, this would mean can I be just with one thing after the other? And I think we, many, many, if not most of us, or all of us, do this in our meditation. I can just be, oh, there is a thought going by. Oh, there's a body sensation. Oh, there's... Uh, I hear something. Oh, there's a sound. Oh, there's another body sensation. Oh, I'm getting... I'm thinking about something that happened yesterday and getting a little flustered. Right? And in meditation, we try to just let the flow occur and see where we sort of resist the flow or get stuck, right? That's the essence of of mindfulness meditation. And that's really the... Essence of the entire practice. In more and more parts of our lives, can I be with the flow, notice where myself feels thick? Myself can be thick when I'm reactive, when I have very, very strong views that I get attached to, when I'm not wanting, liking something that's occurring and I'm resisting it. Now we can still, the opposite of resistance is not, you know, I'm using resistance to mean. Uh, being reactive. You know, something negative happens, we may want to respond to it skillfully. That's a different, different matter. And so the teachings are pointing us in a way to opening up to the flow of experience without there being some solid reference point, solid self. And when we've looked at that in the past, I've made the claim that if you actually look at what you consider your most precious experiences in life, they are of that nature. When you're most in the natural world and you feel most connected maybe, it's when there's actually maybe not much sense of self. You feel really in the flow with the mountains and forest. When you feel most connected with another person, there may be very little sense of self. When you're with people you like the most, you feel most ease with, it's typically where there's almost no self-consciousness. You don't have to think about yourself, right? You don't have to think about, I'm do, I shouldn't say that or I shouldn't do that, right? You just flow with your own being. Same thing with the artistic process. Music or art. As an artist or musician, you're with the flow. Same thing in sports. Right. Sports at its most developed is about this sense of flow and what they call playing in the zone. Same thing in art. An artist is just very much has almost no sense of self. So I've made the claim that what we most value is being with that flow of experience, right? And so This is, uh, that's the core training and it also is a training that helps us to be with challenging situations, maybe some aspects of aging or even dying increasingly without getting stuck. That's the aspiration. So we have a core practice that we can keep on doing that's beneficial at any age. Okay, the last seventh perspective, okay, it's that of awakening. Awakening that all of our practice points towards this awakening, which the Buddha said is actually touching what is deathless. The Buddha, before he began teaching, was enjoined, open the doors of the deathless. That was the language used in that culture at the time. And it's really to see that death is a kind of a mystery. We don't really know. You know. Some of us may read accounts of people who've died and come back, right? And those are very interesting, right? That point towards something that points beyond death being final. This is a Mary Oliver poem. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn... When death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. <laughs> and the Buddha was really pointing to the sense that time is a kind of construction; it doesn't have ultimate reality. That goes against our conventional thinking, doesn't it? <laughs> right, and it's something that we can explore. In our meditation, as we touch the depths, we touch qualities of our being which seem to have timeless qualities, which seem to have qualities that could be called uh, deathless. This is from the Buddha. When consciousness is signless, boundless, all-luminous, that's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. He says this is where there is the end of suffering when consciousness is of this kind which is non-conceptual, a kind of pure awareness that one can touch and actually even live from and increasingly even do ordinary activities and still be in touch with that. This is from the Thai teacher Achan Mahabua. When dukkha her suffering is completely stopped, nothing remains. All that remains is an entirely pure awareness, the purity of the mind and heart and body. If you want, call it nibbana. There's nothing against calling it whatever you want. All I ask is that you know this marvelous, extraordinary Dhamma. The excellent exists on its own accord, without our having to confer titles. So those are are seven different perspectives on the stages of life, the phenomena of aging, and the nature of death. Again, it's really, all of them are pointing to the centrality of our practice. And again, we can talk about it simply. It's to see where there's conditioning, where we get stuck in all sorts of ways, by something difficult, by trauma, by our social conditioning around any number of things. And keep on deconstructing all that conditioning. Keep on seeing where the self is thick, where we're reactive. You know, again, I often like to say we should put in our publicity, come, study all the places you get stuck. (laughs) Study all your neuroses. Study your reactivity and have fun doing it. <laughs> but we talk about wisdom, compassion, love. But anyway, that's my little pet peeve. Okay, okay. So we, we, again, our practice is simple. We see what gets in the way of being with the flow of life and with our deeper nature and we keep on looking at it. And we, we do that whatever age we are. And then we open increasingly to the flow, what I'm calling the flow. I'm using that term as a kind of a metaphor. We open to the flow and we try to stay with it, and that can increasingly, as we stay with it, open us to our depths, which in the tradition is seen to be uh, beyond aging, beyond identity, and beyond death, and can be experienced. And it can be the basis from which one lives increasingly. Thank you for your kind attention, and we have some time now, and we we use microphones again, so wait for the microphone. We had uh you had a, your your point earlier, so why don't we let you start? Please wait. Wait for the microphone. Yeah,
1: is that on? Yeah. Um, while you were talking about uh, reverence for the elders, I was thinking um, about how. During the period of time when, when that was the case, more the case in Western society, technology hadn't traveled as quickly or uh, uh, you know as fast as yeah. it does. So what our society values is knowing the newest thing, having the newest idea being the sharpest edge. Yeah. And the experience of an elder doesn't fit in with our concept of who is the brightest and who is the best? You know, uh, if I can uh, engage in some discussion about technology with someone who's 20, it's not even so much that I value that person, the, the 50-year-old more. It's just that their, their knowledge is old. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems in the past, a person's knowledge, the life experience that they gained, was valued by the societies mm-hmm. that they lived in. So as we become increasingly more engaged in technology, we become more... Engaged in what our brains know and not what our hearts know. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's, that's uh, well said. Um, yeah, we have to look to what is most valued. I mean, it's a complicated issue in, in certain ways um, because um, people often value love or being ethical and so forth. But it's... Um, it's almost thought that that's something that you keep in the private realm, right? So there's a lot of complications here in terms of how the evolution of culture occurred in the last few hundred years. But clearly, the, you know, scientific and technological knowledge is at the center, right? And, uh, you know, just look at the curriculum for universities or for high schools, you know, or for elementary schools, right? To do we learn how to be wise? Do we even learn the nature of emotions? <laughs> right? Not there, you know. There, that's, things are changing, you know. Uh, mindfulness is being brought into a lot of schools, as you know. And so things are changing, but still the, um, the valuing of areas which, such as uh, being ethical, Knowing one's own mind and heart and body, wisdom, these are not at the center of contemporary culture, right? And I think that they actually haven't been for a long time in Western culture. And you can see very similar things happening now in many Asian countries, right? I, you know, I, I, I know Thailand the best, right? I can really see you know it's you know things are shifting quite quickly and so yeah yeah so there there's large scale cultural conditioning connected with what is most valued which is on a certain level seems to be quote unquote material things right and you know and the improvement in physical being in a certain way so we have just we're i mean this culture is just full of contradictions right and so forth. And I also, there are also a lot of wonderful qualities (laughs) to the culture. We have a certain degree of social freedom. We can be here, right? It's a lot of, but, um, but the question is where does wisdom come in? You know, where does wisdom come into education? When do children learn uh, wisdom? Who do they learn it from? Even learning something, even learning to be ethical, So that's a big area, right? But it's, uh, yeah, it's not. uh, So that's why I think that if we actually look in the directions that I've been pointing to and ask, uh, could there be real changes such that uh, we value elders and we value wisdom more generally, how would society change? Maybe some of you feel called to help that process. That's the vision, right? So other reflections, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: Um, I really like what you said about civil rights for the elderly. Yeah. I think that um, you know these are people that people whistle stop go in. And they see the true nature of what's happening with people in their little apartments who don't have anybody. They're bringing food to them, and we're having yeah. cutbacks yeah. on that. So these are people that can't go to San Francisco or any big city and really protest. They're vulnerable. And what you don't see, you don't know. And that brings up the issue of you know, people very lightly say, oh, yeah, I'll be your representative as you get older. And I think they have no clue as young people, Mm -hmm. what they're getting into or what they have to face. So they don't even understand the process of being elderly, yet they've taken this responsibility on. And with their overwhelmingness, I think that's where some of the um, uh, kind of abuse can happen, you know, or neglect.
0: Yeah, it's not, I I like what you said, and it's really a question of, you know, you think of indigenous cultures, everyone's living together, they really, they know all the life stages, right? That's increasingly less the case, right? And so one of the things I loved most about that program I worked with in my 20s was that we had just this intimate connection between the generations. Every day, and we were exploring and talking, and what do you think, and so forth. And it was really what would that be like if that was much more widespread, you know? And, um, you know, and then you know, kind of the isolation sometimes of older people in homes and so forth. It's, um, again, there's some positive aspects of that, but there are a lot of negative ones as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I was, I was particularly taking your, your point about people not really knowing, right? Yeah, thank you. Please, so we had, I think we had, uh, yeah, we wanna have you be, why don't you, why don't you go next and then and then right after that, yeah. Thank you for your talk, it was very clear. Um,
1: I'm wondering in, in Buddhist
0: tradition yeah. uh, whether there are uh, rituals of uh, mourning for the dead. So in Judaism, for seven days every day mm. remembrance, or is that viewed as um, attachment to the impermanent human being? The counter is it's it's a true loss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, something I don't know deeply, but I, I have you know some information. Um, I know in um, Tibet, for example, it was uh, you know the there was less a sense of personal mourning. It would depend on the situation, right? There was um, you know when um, someone would die at a very ripe age, it would be more seen as a teaching on impermanence, and one would cherish the teachings and so forth. And, um, you know, sometimes they would leave the bodies out to feed other beings, right? And I know in a number of instances, sometimes when there was a death that was, uh, you know, of a child, for example, then it was something where, in many instances, some very famous poems and passages where teachers more or less said, yes, impermanence, and... You know, there's a famous poem, famous famous haiku by uh, Issa about the death of his son, where he quotes the uh, famous Heart Sutra uh, lines, or the Diamond Sutra. I'm sorry, Diamond Sutra lines, which says, you know, like uh, like a dewdrop in the morning, such is this life. You know, a bunch of metaphors to talk about the transience of things. And, and Issa writes a haiku after his son dies and says, this is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And that's the invitation to really to compassion and, and, and some degree of mourning, I think. So you find that at different times. So yeah, there, there are, there, I think there are books that probably could give more information. That's what comes to me now. Yeah, Thank you. Maybe last one. Oh, yeah, I was. I may have mentioned this another time, but uh, my kids are in public school in yeah. Puerto Madera, and they're part of the Mindfulness Schools yeah.
1: organization. And it's interesting to see them come home and teach me things. And yeah. I, you know, I teach them things at home, but some of the stuff is coming from the teachers themselves. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. There's so much room for um, shifting things, right? You know, and personally, I've been very interested. You know, being uh, a teacher and being interested in sort of visions of education—it's um, could be really amazing, and, and things are happening. You know, I I go everywhere to Louis, every year to Louisville, Kentucky. You might not think of it, but one of the most uh, highly developed implementations of mindfulness in the school system is happening in Kentucky. As I understand it, the entire public school system has the <clears throat> mandate to bring mindfulness into the curriculum it's quite it's quite extraordinary. more than San Francisco Bay Area, right Louisville, Kentucky, know yeah. So <clears throat> things are possible and things are happening, and may we be um, see where we're called to really help, because again. There's the, you know, the essence of the practice is go deeply in oneself, see what gets in the way of your mindfulness, your compassion, your awakening. Go deeply, open up to the depths, and then help others at whatever level that's, you're, you know, you're called. So that's the that's very simple expression of the core of this practice. So let's um, offer... <clears throat> the benefits of our morning together to ourselves, to all of those in our circles. And then beyond our own circles, offer the benefits of our practice, of our time together for the benefit of all beings, for the development, healing, transformation, and freedom of all beings which includes us, and in that we include ourselves in that, that wish. So thank you again for your uh, attention and good questions and listening. Thank you. Mm-hmm.